Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Property and Freedom Part 2. Recorded in 2000, Dr. James D. Gwartney, Chief Economist of the Joint Economic Committee and Richard Pipes, Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, continued the discussion about property rights, ownership, and responsibilities. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Pipes, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to visit with you on the issue of property rights and freedom. Those are two topics that I have been quite interested in. My background in economics, probably a maybe a bit different perspective than, than yours. Uh, but one of the things that I think if you look at the attention that economists have given to property rights is until fairly recently they were often ignored in most of our models, that it was more or less assumed that property rights were present and well-defined and things of that sort. And I was wondering if you could give us some background with regard to historians and the attention that historians have played to the role of property rights in, uh, their, in historical analysis. On the whole, very little. Uh, a, uh, if you look into a, any general survey of history of the United States or of the, of the West, look in the index, there'll probably be no entry for property. Uh, it's just taken for granted. Uh, whereas, in fact, it is uh, not only central to Western history, but unique to Western history. Um, if you study the development of property rights, uh, particularly in regard to land, because that was the main source of productive wealth, um, you'll find that it did not exist anywhere else outside uh, the West, this Middle East, Greece, Israel, uh, and then Western Europe, uh, until very recent times. So uh, very little attention was paid to it because it was just so taken for granted by, by Western historians, like uh, Western economists, that uh, it was ignored. Why do you think this is true, that modern scholars have uh, given so little attention to uh, the importance of property rights? Well, because you have to go outside of European history, as I did, to, to study Russia, that you become aware of it. You simply don't become aware of it. You become aware of things uh, when you find that they can also be absent that in Europe, property was always uh, part of civilization. Uh, it was in Europe from the earliest times, it was accepted that any king who violates the property rights of uh, his subjects is a tyrant. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, there were violations of property rights, but they were exceptional. But when you study the history of non-European civilizations, you then become keenly aware mm -hmm. how, how unique this is to Europe. And, you know, the people like Douglas North, uh, they've made people aware of it by looking at it from non-European civilizations. A former professor of mine, by the was way. Was he? Yeah. Yes, he was. was. Well, it's, in economics, it's interesting that you uh, highlight that oftentimes we learn more about it, property rights when we view the situation when they're absent. Right. Uh, because certainly that's been the case in economics. Uh, oftentimes in economics classes we'll contrast the case between, say, cattle and why there's no problem of uh, extermination of cattle and things of that sort uh, with the buffalo where you had poorly defined property rights, yes. at least in certain uh, locales, and that there became a, a, a virtually driven out of existence as a result of absence of property rights. So uh, it is interesting that uh, in these cases, maybe when they aren't present, that it highlights more yeah, exactly. about about why they're important. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I, I'm not an economist, and uh, uh, I, I, my primary interest for many years has been in the political system of Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, I became interested in Russia during the height of the Cold War, 
and I began to look backwards in Russian history, see if there's any connection between communism and Tsarism. And the more I studied, the more connections I saw, the more links I saw. And one of the outstanding things was the absence of private property. Now, Tsarism only had private property in the last century and a half of its existence, but it existed for over eight centuries. And private property land did not exist, either before or after. Uh, so I became very keenly aware of it and realized that uh, the kind of royal absolutism we had in Russia, say in the uh, 16th, 17th centuries, differed fundamentally from what you had in Western Europe. And I adopted a, a term from Mark, uh, Max Weber, patrimonial regime. I said Russia was a patrimonial regime, the way pharaonic Egypt was. Uh, what does it mean? It means that the king, or the, in Russia, the Tsar, had not only absolute uh, power over the country, but he also owned it, literally owned mm -hmm. it. Uh, he owned all the land, all the products of the land, and he owned all the citizens, all the subjects. He could tell them what to do, he could order them around, just the way the pharaohs could. And uh, that is all connected with the right of property. Well, that certainly highlights the linkage between uh, property rights and freedom. Yes. Can you have uh, freedom without property rights, I, without private ownership? I don't think you can. And I, I, I cannot think of historical instances where you have societies that are free, in the sense which we understand the word, and that are democratically ruled, which do not recognize private property. It's just not the case. That traditionally, through most of the world, uh, particularly in the Middle East, the typical regime was a patrimonial regime where the kings owned everything and therefore there was no liberty. So one would expect that uh, essentially the more secure that property rights are that uh, that would be associated with certainly more personal freedom in any case. Yes, definitely and also the rule of law because law to a very large extent is connected with property rights. If you look at old law codes beginning with the so-called 12 tables of the Romans, go back to the 5th century, but even before that to the <coughs> Code of Hammurabi in Mesopotamia. Uh, they all, all these legal uh, the documents were connected with property, protection of property. So, as Jeremy Bentham said, uh, where you have no property, you have no law, and where you have no law, you have no property. You know, it's interesting in that regard, uh, this linkage between property rights and freedom, that uh, while most uh, uh, scholars have been very uh, often perceive of themselves as being defenders of freedom that have often been hostile to property rights. Now, well, isn't this an internal conflict? Well, they don't see the connection because people who are liberal or left of liberal tend to think of property only as a source of inequality, social inequality and exploitation. Therefore, they don't see any connection between property and, and freedom. And several of the reviewers of my book have made this mistake, said, well, property, I mean, it's not the guarantees of property that are important, it's the distribution of property that's important, allegedly. Uh, and it, 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 it will take a lot of education to persuade them this is not so. Uh, one of the signs at the uh, WTO convention in, in <laughs> Seattle in 1999 had a sign that pr property is the root of all evil. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, certainly illustrates this point that you're talking about. This was somebody who was uh, quite interested in protecting the environment but did not see a relationship. It's very interesting. Well, this is a paraphrase at uh, St. Paul's statement, which is usually misquoted. Uh, he said, the love of money is the root of all evil which is usually trans uh, paraphrased to money is the root of all evil. But St. Paul said it's the love of mine, which is greed is the root of all evil, not money. And it's not property, but uh, greed that is the root of evil. That's true. Property is the root of all good, 
but these people are very ignorant of history. Sometimes you'll also have some, uh, someone uh, uh, confront you with the argument when you stress the importance of property rights. And of course, when we stress the importance of, of property rights, we're talking about the rights of individuals to own property yeah. and have control and buy and selling it. But uh, occasionally in class, I know as a, a faculty member, you've probably run yeah, into this exactly. in some reaction and say, well, I'm in favor of you know, rights of individuals, but not rights of property. Yeah. And of course, well, it's a contradiction in terms. Exactly. I'd like to probe a little bit the, the relationship between uh, uh, property rights and, and economic progress. This is something that economists, uh, uh, as we think about property and integrate property into our, our models, uh, that uh, we draw a linkage between property rights and then more broadly economic freedom and uh, market allocation and economic progress. Is that a topic that uh, as historians have... Uh... Well, up to a point I can discuss it. And it seems to me there's a lot of literature in it nowadays. Uh, Tom Bethel wrote a very interesting book on this subject called The, uh, the Noblest Triumph. And he, as well as other writers, point out why this is so. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, the, the Jamestown colony in the early 17th century was founded essentially on communistic principle, mm -hmm. uh, that everybody worked the soil and people got what they needed. And they found very quickly that there were a lot of shirkers, people who didn't do any work, but always came out and when came time for distribution. And they then went over to private ownership. And they found that uh, people produced much, much more. I remember tenfold as much as we used to produce before because they had a stake in, in, in their own land. Um, there are numerous other examples why, uh, reasons why property is conducive to um, economic progress. Hernando de Soto, who is a Peruvian economist, mm -hmm. wrote a very interesting book uh, whose title now escapes me. The Other Path. The Other Path. Mm -hmm. you no, know, was that the... Perhaps. But what he pointed out there was that an enormous uh, sector of the Peruvian economy was illegal. Mm -hmm. That is, people run businesses without having the right to do so because it was so complicated, so cumbersome, so expensive to get licenses. Regulation, restricting oh, property so rights just, in various yeah, ways. So they mm -hmm. had taxi businesses, busing businesses, um, uh, housing. They would squat in the towns uh, and live in shacks. And the reason they lived in shacks is because at any time the authorities would come and, and remove them. So they put their money not into better buildings, but into television sets and, and uh, things like that. Now he found, uh, and he persuaded the government of Peru to privatize this land, to give it to them, mm -hmm. that immediately order was introduced. For one thing, because when they owned a title to the land, they could get collateral, they could use that collateral in banks for getting loans, which led to enormous uh, burgeoning of, of, of productivity in, 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 in Peru. So that's another example. Uh, third example, it's what's been known in sort of in business as the tragedy of the commons, that when people own everything in common, uh, nobody has a vested interest in protecting it. Uh, for example, fishing rights. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody grabs what they can. If you privatize, people take care of what they have, and uh, this has been demonstrated time and again that it not only creates greater freedom on their part, but it also leads to economic progress. Really. One of the most important. Uh attributes of, of property rights then is 
the fact that they hold people accountable for their actions. Yeah. If it's something that you privately own yeah. and you abuse it or misuse it in some That's way, right. that you're going to be held responsible for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, you'll be paid the penalty for it. You'll pay the penalty exactly. for it. Exactly. And we take much better care of things that we own privately, in, therefore. In pre-revolutionary Russia, uh, most of the land, Russia was an agricultural country, 80% of the people lived under land of agriculture. Um, was owned either by communes or individually. And Russia was a large exporter of grain. The communists in the late 1920s, early 1930s abolished that and nationalized all the land and transformed all farmers, peasants, into essentially serfs who worked for the state for a salary. And they had no, no interest at all in taking care of the state land, what they, which, which the productivity fell enormously and there, was, there were enormous hungers and starvation, mm -hmm. particularly in the early 30s. And Russia not only didn't export grain, but they had to import grain. But the only thing they took care of was these little garden plots, which the government allowed them to take care of. Exactly. And they could have a cow there and so on. So they accounted for a lot of production of Russian meat and Russian dairy products and Russian vegetables and fruits, because this was private. And right. They didn't care. Even though those private plots amounted to about 1% to 2% of the total land, something I think that like, they raised something like 25 to 30% of the total value. I think that's roughly correct. I think 3% of the land was yeah. theirs. But it was a, a very a large multiple of the value that was enormous. produced relative to the land. In terms of food, enormous. Yeah. I could actually give a personal testimony related to that uh, in terms of how people responded to the cultivation of the land and even uh, private plots that some people in urban areas were sometimes given by, at the edge of cities. When I taught at Central European University in 1993 uh, uh, to 94, that uh, our students used to talk about how everybody worked so hard on the weekends. And you pursued that and you found out that essentially on the weekends, Friday evening, they headed for their private plot where yes. they were building it up, taking care of things and yeah. having a little garden there and things of that sort. And then on the, in the weekdays, they said they rested, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which well, is more or less the, back, you know, the opposite. Well, that's the how the Russians today survive, because they don't have money to buy food. And if you travel on, on Russian railroads, all along railroads, you see these private little gardens, which they tend. Right. And... Uh, Russian food production hasn't taken off the way it should because Russian farmers don't have the capital uh, to buy the equipment and, and fertilize and everything else. So they still maintain these collective farms in effect, which are very unproductive. I'd like to come back to that issue in just a moment, but uh, this linkage between uh, uh, private property and, and innovation and entrepreneurship, if we look at our modern economy, so much of of the differences in our economic standard of living today relative to say even 1970 or certainly 1950 uh, is introduction of new products, new ways of doing yeah. things, so many things that are completely new. And uh, doesn't private property play a central role there? Well, enormous. Uh, Douglas North, uh, your teacher, has shown that the introduction of patent laws in England in the 17th century led to this enormous explosion of inventiveness because people could earn by what they, what they invented and marketed. So that the Industrial Revolution probably would have been unthinkable without patent laws. And uh, that, you know, intellectual property, as we call it today, is a vital uh, factor in economic development and progress. If we look at this at, at modern Russia today, uh, you alluded to the fact that the productivity has not gone up as much since the fall of communism as, as perhaps what we might expect. Uh, and particularly over a longer period of time. What would be your explanation of why that's the case? Well, because you really, first of all, 
you really didn't have privatization in industry and commerce to a large extent. I mean, much of what the wealth that existed in the Soviet days was not privatized, but stolen by the old members of the communist upper class. And the average person got nothing out of it. They gave vouchers, but these vouchers were either worthless or they were stolen from them. Um, there's no law really protecting uh, property. For example, in Russia today, uh, courts do not enforce private co uh, contracts, which means that if a person uh, lends money to another person and that uh, borrower doesn't want to pay back, there's no recourse to law. There's only recourse to the mafia and to murder, mm -hmm. which is not a healthy way. Um, taxation laws are arbitrarily changed. There's really no rule of law that way either. In other words, you can Many foreign investors found this. They, they invest in Russia. They are told how, how they will be taxed. And then when they start making profit, the they taxes cha it changes quickly. Changed. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a climate. It's totally unpropitious uh, for private enterprise. Uh, there's really no, no... Private property exists, of course, but on a very small scale and not in big business. And it's not supported by rule of law. No, it's not supported. I've sometimes drawn the analogy in some of my own writing between thinking about the current... Uh, rule of law, property rights structure in Russia, and that for illegal activity in the United States, uh, illegal drug trade and things yeah. of this it's, sort, it's, where violence plays a greater role, right. the way you enforce con right. yeah. contracts yeah. as you hire thugs. Yeah, it's very similar to that. Uh, and essentially the Russian, so-called yeah. Russian mafia yeah. could be thought of as, yeah. as very much in this it's kind. very unhealthy. Uh, I was in Russia last summer and I lectured to some young politicians and I said, look, there are two things. You, one thing you should undo as you enter the 21st century, another thing you should do. Forget about being a great power. You are not, and you can only cause a lot of mischief if you, if you try to be a great power. What you should do is build up a lawful society and develop your economy. But they didn't like that message. I'll bet they didn't like that message very well. Yeah, where, where do you see uh, Russia going? If you can look in a crystal ball, and I realize that's a, historians perhaps don't yeah. like to do that, but on the other hand, we learn lessons from history yeah. that give us insights as to yeah. how the future is going to uh, unfold. How do you see the situation in Russia unfolding? Well, if you asked me eight or nine years ago, I would have said I'm very optimistic. I think things are going in the right direction, democracy, market economy. But it is not now. I think they've been very disenchanted by it. and. I see what's happening at the very moment is the same old uh, gang taking over power, particularly the old KGB, the police people. I mean, the old beginning of the acting president and his chief rival, Primakov, these are really KGB people taking over Russia. And uh, the one thing that brought Putin to power was this uh, campaign against the Chechens, violent campaign which gives Russians a feeling that they are a great power. And that's very unwholesome. And uh, I think we're in for a bad period in Russia of, of a, semi, some kind, a kind of Latin American democracy that is supposed democracy but really dictatorship, a property concentrated in very few hands. And the antagonism that has arisen in not only Russia but certain parts of Eastern Europe as well toward private property because of the corruption associated with the privatization of it, as you were saying, that oftentimes uh, uh, individuals were given vouchers but really they uh, didn't, uh, essentially they were minority uh, uh, stockholders, if you like, in that they were in a position to be taken advantage That's of. Right. This is less true of Eastern Europe, certainly not true of Poland. Yes, it's, uh, it's certainly less true it's, there. But it's very true of Russia, uh, Belarusia, and the various countries which were once formed part of, uh, of the Soviet Union. It is very true. You know, it is difficult to think of a, uh, 
uh, ideal way to privatize property on such a scale as it was socialized or government owned. It's very difficult. And without having, do you have uh, uh, any thoughts about uh, uh, even today what Russia might do to achieve uh, I'm really results? not a specialist on this. Uh, um, I don't have any recommendations. Uh, I think obviously the very first thing you have to do is to enforce law to have a st you know, strict laws about private property and about everything else and enforce them. I think if you do that, uh, you, you will see enormous progress. For one thing, because foreigners will be coming in with large amounts of capital. There's a lot of capital slashing around the world, waiting for investment opportunities. And what's invested in Russia is peanuts. I mean, two years ago, I mean, when I went to Russia in last summer, I got the statistic that I think American investments in Russia the preceding year were equal to American investments in Peru. Yes, okay. which of course Peru is just a fraction it's of the size, both country. population yeah. and geographically. And now maybe even less. So I think uh, this is introduction for the Russian called Pravovoy Gosudarstvovy, state based on law, is absolutely essential. And of course it's not only foreign investment, but it's investment on the part of, of, of Russians outside of Russia. They said that something like 60 plus billion dollars are deposited in foreign banks. And that money will flow back. Well, and not only deposited in foreign blanks, but purchased in uh, uh, land in, in uh, places like Cyprus and exactly. uh, Switzerland and exactly. uh, other places. It's I understand even Miami. should be repatriated. Yes. That money. It would be mm -hmm. if people felt secure. But, uh, I mean, the constantly changing laws. Putin passed, uh, issued a decree, I think, either yesterday or today, uh, forcing companies uh, who deal with exports to um, uh, convert not 75%, but 100% of their foreign earnings into rubles. Before they could keep 25% of it in foreign currency. So the rules are changed all the time, and always to the benefit of the state and never the benefit of the investors. Mm -hmm. Well, some would argue that uh, the case of Russia in particular uh, would be illustrative of the fact that property rights and markets don't work so well. And it seems to me the conclusion is just the opposite. Yeah. And that is that it, Russia is a case today of very insecure property rights, poorly defined property rights, okay. absence of rule of law. And then if we look at the period of the, uh, uh, of the 90s, there's also the property right to, to stable money. And of course Russia has not had that. And one of the yeah. things that will erode any type of, of uh, time dimension transactions, investments and exactly. across time periods, is when you have inflation of 100% one year. Well, inflation is now under control, at least up so far. That's right, but I think it's interesting the way you put that yeah. so far. How so many of us want to bank our savings on the fact that, I you know, that we remain example. under well, control? Uh, Russian inflation? In 1990, I believe it was, a Russian publisher purchased the rights to one of my books, and he paid me 14,000 rubles which at that time was close to $14,000. And my wife wanted to buy a dacha, which is a country house there, but people said, don't do that, because peasants would set fire to it. So, so I left it in the bank. Mm -hmm. And that money today would buy one slice of pizza, <laughs> literally, because it only amounts to 50 cents. Right. Isn't that something? And a slice of pizza is probably a little bit more than that. Well, you so, talk about erosion of property rights, the property uh, rights to... Wiped out. I mean, savings have been wiped out, which is really an erosion of property rights. Exactly. On a vast scale. And right now, in various ways, they're keeping the ruble steady, fairly steady. It's eroded from 25 to 28 to the dollar in the last few weeks. But uh, they do this because, and by not printing money, but they don't print money because they don't pay salaries and back wages. 
it's not a healthy situation. Exactly. What about property rights in China? Now, I know you focused on, yeah. on, on uh, uh, Russia, but in your research you also have some uh, uh, thoughts, I'm sure, about the importance of property I rights and lessons more. from China. I knew more. I wish I knew more about them. The Chinese government certainly uh, asserts property rights. It tells people to get rich, and uh, particularly the farmers, the farming population, and protects property rights. And the question is, uh, how long can a dictatorship of the Communist Party survive with, with a population that becomes wealthier and wealthier? Uh, I see the whole system melting down. Uh, but to what extent really they respect these property rights, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I, I don't follow it as closely as I do in Russia. Well, certainly as we went from the period of, of, of late 70s, uh, where property rights were completely, everything, the farms were all cl uh, collectivized, yeah to where they did privatize uh, plots and give individual families sure. pri uh, property rights to those. It had a dramatic impact on output, on just as uh, you know, uh, the difference between the private and the public was in, in Russia. But in this case, the privatization led to a, a substantial increase yeah, in, in part grain because output. in China, I believe a large part of the uh, rural working forces remained in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. In Russia, uh, partly because of the poverty of country life and partly because the government drive to industrialize, a very large part of the rural population has left uh, for the cities. So whereas in uh, the early 20s, in the 20s, 80% of the population lived in the uh, countryside and 20% lived in the cities, today it's almost reverse. You have 30% of the population living in the cities and only, uh, I'm sorry, 70% living in the cities and 30% living in the countryside. And that population in the countryside is often older people, sick people, women, children. Um, everybody who's able-bodied tends to go into the city. To go to the city. Because it's better life mm -hmm. and so on. So uh, in China, I think the transition from collective farming to private farming was much easier to achieve than it is in Russia. It doesn't have the laboring force. Mm -hmm. People don't want to work on the farms in Russia. Right. It's a very hard life. I'd like to shift the discussion just a little bit to thinking rather than about uh, uh, Russia and China and former socialist uh, countries, uh, to thinking about the linkage between uh, democracy and property rights, but also the possibility that democracy in the sense of unrestrained majoritarian democracy might actually be a deterrent to uh, rule of law and property rights. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's an absolute danger. As I point out in my book, um, the uh, growth of the welfare state has almost everywhere been accompanied by restriction of uh, property rights and, and, and personal freedoms. Mm -hmm. Because the whole idea of not only guaranteeing minimum uh, survival, subsistence for the poorer elements of the population, but redistributing, redistributing wealth uh, infringes on property rights. I mean, very heavy taxation, uh, uh, inheritance, death duties, and all of that. Uh, leads to in infringement on, on private uh, property and private rights. Uh, so do minimum wages, uh, affirmative action. They all, they all are wanted by the majority of the people who, who don't quite realize how in the long run this is going to infringe on their freedoms. But um, I think most people uh, are more concerned with their day-to-day -day life and their incomes and uh, social security and medical services than they are of freedom because they don't feel it affects them. But if that continues for a very long time, freedom will be eroded to the point where government will very easily will make the transition to an undemocratic way of government. If you look at the relationship between uh, size of government uh, 
if you look what's first of all happened to the size of government in the last four decades, that the component of government that has to do with supplying of, of goods and services, of military, for example, yeah. of uh, uh, police uh, uh, service, rule of law, operation of the courts, providing of a monetary regime, there's actually been relatively little growth of government in these areas. Yeah. Where the growth of government has come about, and it's true not only in the United States but also yeah, in Western right. Europe, uh, where the growth of government has come about is, of course, in the expansion of these transfer yeah, sectors. Exactly, yeah. And that it's much greater in Western Europe than in the United States. It is, uh, so far. But because That's right. In countries like uh, Germany and Sweden, uh, government controls approximately 50-60% of the GDP. Whereas the United States is about, what, 30? About it's one, about 33. 33, one-third. Yeah. Uh, but we're moving in that direction steadily. <laughs> yeah, although actually the, the size of government in Western European countries vis-a-vis -vis the United States was more similar in the early 1960s than yeah. it is today. Yeah. The government has grown more rapidly in, in Western Europe and uh, I think that there's good economic reason to believe that the reason why you have a slower growth rate and a much higher rate of unemployment in Western Europe than in the United States is because of this growth of particularly yeah. the transfer sector. Well, the people realize that. I mean, there have been all kinds of crises in countries like Sweden and, and Germany and, 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 and Great Britain uh, because people realize that there's a limit to how much of uh, the wealth you can redistribute without destroying the very basis of prosperity. The research that I've done would suggest that if your uh, government, total government expenditures, including the transfer sector, are 10 percent higher that it will lead to a permanent lower growth rate of about 1%. Is that so? so if you have a country, say, that has 50% of GDP allocated through the government, uh, if a, it'll have about a 2% slower growth rate than a country that's, that's that has 30% of GDP. That's interesting. I think most beneficiaries of this welfare don't realize it. Well, I, I think that's true. And it's interesting, you know, that actually the size of government in the United States uh, has modestly been declining in the 1990s. Oh, now, it's primarily as a reduction, as a result of reduction in defense expenditures. Oh, I see. Okay. But uh, nonetheless, it's declined from around 35 to 36 percent of GDP. This is federal, state, and local. 35 to is 35 to 36 percent of GDP down now down to around 31 or 32 percent. You know, uh, historians have calculated that uh, I think at the, in the late 17th century, in France and England, the government controlled something like 6 to 8 percent of the GDP. That's, that would be right. Okay, so over 90 percent was in private hands. That's right. And in, in the United States, the federal government expenditures were about 3 percent as recently oh, as... Uh, and that's when the foundations of liberty were laid. That's right. That's right. Well, even if you look at, at you mentioned, uh, you know, another area where uh, the, uh, property rights play a role and, and that is a, a demand, increasing demand for government activity here is in the area of government financing of medical services. And, yeah. of course, this is a big controversy in, in the United States today. But I think it's interesting that one of the things as we have had increasing government involvement in the form of Medicare and Medicaid where essentially you got third-party payments, yes. that the system has not worked very yeah, well. I know. It, but it's very dangerous to tamper with it, as the Republicans found out a few years ago. People are frightened. Older people are yes. frightened. You know. uh, it may be one of those conflicts between uh, democracy or between sound economics, yes, if you and, like. And, and, and democracy. And, and democratic yeah. decision-making. 
Well, it's been a pleasure to visit with you, and I, I certainly wish you, uh, your uh, uh, continued research in this uh, uh, area well, and uh, am delighted that your book has had a, such a marvelous uh, reception. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me to discuss the subject with you. Thank you. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.